Welcome to Skim This. The U.S. economy got its latest report card this morning. And it actually wasn't as bad as people thought. We'll break down the latest numbers, along with the week's other big headlines, including what you need to know about RSV, the virus that parents can't stop talking about. Also on the show, we're breaking down the three biggest issues driving voters to the ballot box for midterms. If abortion is actually on the ballot in a specific state, then it can have a lot of impact. If it's not on the ballot in a specific state, the question is, are candidates putting it front and center? And to wrap things up, in honor of Midnight's, we're asking a music expert how to properly listen to an album. Because apparently, we've been doing it wrong this whole time. It's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, we got the latest U.S. GDP numbers this morning. Quick reminder, GDP is basically the measure of the overall size of the economy. We also watch GDP because it often can tell us how close we are to being in a recession. And this morning, we found out the U.S. economy grew slightly. Specifically, it grew 2.6% in the third quarter of this year. That's up 2% from the previous quarter, and it's the first GDP increase in 2022. Digging into the numbers, experts say that spending on consumer goods slowed, but Americans still spent money on services like healthcare, travel, and hospitality. And the biggest boost came from the shrinking trade deficit, meaning the U.S. imported less and exported more, which helped the economy grow. So what does all of this mean? Well, the U.S. isn't in a recession, at least for now. But experts warn a slowdown is probably still coming. Many economists still believe a recession will hit the U.S. in the next 12 months, and that this was just a one-time GDP bump. And when we look at some of the corporate earnings we got this week, it seems like U.S. businesses are hitting a rough patch. Meta, former screen name Facebook, reported two consecutive quarters of revenue decline for the first time ever. And the company also said things weren't looking so hot for Q4. As a result, Meta stock dropped 20% after trading closed. Meanwhile, Alphabet, which is Google's parent company, reported more than a 25% decrease in the company's net profit from the same time last year. And considering those big tech companies made record profits during the pandemic, it seems like the boom was not built to last. And looking ahead to the coming months, the economic forecast is still cloudy because the Federal Reserve is expected to raise interest rates again at its meeting next week. For our next headline, we're focusing on the fallout after Ye, formerly known as Kanye West, spouted hate speech and anti-Semitic comments. Wearing a White Lives Matter t-shirt. Kanye West. It's abhorrent behavior. I hope he gets help. I could say anti-Semitic things and Adidas can't drop me. Adidas did finally drop him. That didn't age well. Here's the context. Ye has been in the headlines for several incidents of hate speech this month. 
At a Paris fashion show, he wore a White Lives Matter t-shirt. Then he made fatphobic comments about Lizzo and bullied a Vogue fashion editor, both black women. And in recent weeks, he made anti-Semitic comments in the press and on social media. Specifically, he made several anti-Semitic comments on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News. And in a screenshotted conversation with a fellow rapper, he wrote that Jewish people can't threaten or influence him. Ultimately, it got him banned from Instagram. And just a few days later, he tweeted that he'd go death con three on Jewish people, which also got him suspended from that platform. But the hate didn't stop on social media. Over the weekend, an anti-Semitic hate group took to Los Angeles's busiest freeway and praised his comments by holding a sign that read, Kanye was right about the Jews. They held up Nazi salutes and other anti-Semitic posters as drivers passed by. And at the same time, Jewish residents in the city received flyers that blamed Jewish people for COVID. This sounded the alarms for a lot of people, since anti-Semitism has been on the rise since the pandemic started. The Anti-Defamation League, which is an organization dedicated to fighting anti-Semitism, has found that anti-Jewish comments increased by one-third in 2021 from the year prior. And that only accounts for reported comments. As for the consequences for Mr. West, at least 10 companies have severed ties with him, and Adidas was the most notable one. Now, Adidas is projecting a loss of a quarter billion dollars in Q4, while Ye will lose his billionaire status, according to Forbes. And we should point out, a lot of people criticized Adidas and other companies for not holding him accountable sooner. Because after years of controversial and hateful statements, many had already reached their breaking point. Ye's comments also spark conversations around mental health, since he's been open about his bipolar disorder diagnosis. But experts note that people with bipolar disorder aren't predisposed to be anti-Semitic, racist, or fatphobic, and that hate speech is not excusable. For our final headline, we're skimming what you need to know about RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus. Because in recent weeks, dozens of hospitals across the U.S. have reported spikes of RSV in children. All the children's hospitals are completely packed, both on the floor, in the emergency room, and in the pediatric intensive care units. That's Dr. Stephanie Davis. She's a pediatric pulmonologist at UNC's Children's Research Institute. And she helped us understand what RSV is and how to prevent it from spreading. Let's start with a definition. RSV is a common respiratory virus that causes mild, cold-like symptoms, like a runny nose or a cough. Adults can get it, but it's most common among children. In fact, almost all U.S. children will have RSV by the time they're two years old. So if RSV is so common, why is it in the headlines now? That's because many kids weren't exposed to RSV during the pandemic so they couldn't build up natural immunity against it. And that explains the huge influx in RSV cases recently. Now, hospitals are struggling to keep up. Several children's hospitals in the Washington, D.C. area have been at capacity for weeks, while the Connecticut Children's Hospital asked FEMA and the National Guard for help. With flu season starting and COVID still spreading, 
healthcare workers are growing nervous about what's to come this fall and winter, especially since RSV could lead to pneumonia and bronchiolitis in babies under six months and in children with weaker immune systems. But while this all sounds pretty intense, Dr. Davis says, remember that most cases of RSV are mild. And she shared with us a few symptoms to look out for in your kids before you seek help from a medical professional. You may see a drop in appetite or if your child stops eating or drinking formula, breastfeeding, et cetera, you're gonna to wanna to have your child seen right away because they can't get dehydrated and need fluids. So hydration is really important. You can certainly give them Tylenol or something like that if they've got a fever and then monitor their breathing. Children who have RSV can have kind of a wheezy sound or whistling sound, have crackles when you listen to their chest. So those are the things to look at. The other thing is they may breathe faster and have what we call retractions where they're pulling in their chest more. The TLDR is this. If your kid isn't eating or drinking as much, or coughing with a whistling sound, seek medical attention. As for how we can keep our kids safe, well, it's giving us deja vu from 2020, but... Hand washing, hand washing, hand washing. RSV spreads through droplets from coughs or sneezes, which can make their way onto surfaces. And P.S., they can survive for hours. So the next time you're cleaning up, remember to give surfaces like doorknobs or cribs some extra TLC and to keep those hands squeaky clean. There's some drama going down in the desert. I want to go to Saudi Arabia where investors have gathered for the future investment initiative dubbed Davos in the Desert. U.S.-Saudi relations on the brink. Pressure on American companies in particular to basically boycott this event. These just aren't any executives. We're talking arguably some of the biggest in the world. Unleaded hits $5. Then it's time to go sword dancing with the Saudis. Am I right, Joe? Hundreds of America's top business leaders jet-set to Saudi Arabia this week to participate in a major investment summit. And the Biden administration was not too happy about them attending. We'll skim what's going on in 60 seconds. Saudi Arabia's annual Future Investment Initiative, also known as Davos in the Desert, took place this week. According to the organizers, it's an event that addresses major economic issues through talks and summits. But experts say it's also a place for business leaders to shake hands and seal deals with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And this year, U.S. representation was strong. Over 400 U.S. business leaders attended, including top finance bros like J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon and Goldman Sachs' David Solomon, as well as former Trump administration officials like Jared Kushner and Steve Mnuchin. And they went because, unlike the U.S., Saudi Arabia's economy is doing pretty well right now. Its oil-dependent economy has thrived thanks to, you guessed it, high oil prices, and it's on track to have one of the fastest growing economies in the world this year. So when you put all of those things on paper, it makes sense that U.S. business leaders would look to the kingdom for cash. But it turns out these CEOs are actually making things pretty awkward by attending because the U.S. government and Saudi Arabia are not friends right now. Things first got tense in 2018 when U.S. intelligence determined that Saudi Arabia was responsible for the murder of the Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi 
and much of the West actually boycotted Davos in the desert that year. And this year, relations got worse when Saudi Arabia, the de facto leader of OPEC+, decided to cut the group's oil production earlier this month. That ticked off Team Biden because oil cuts could bump gas prices for Americans. When it came to U.S. CEOs attending the summit, the administration stopped short of saying, but it did warn them to consider the reputation of the countries they do business with. Still, the CEOs who attended acted like it was business as usual. And maybe it was the desert heat that helped them ignore the international awkwardness between the US and the Saudis. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. Whether or not we've realized it, politicians have had a huge impact on our lives this year. In a sweeping ruling that overturned a half a century of precedents, five justices ended the right of American women to choose abortion under the Constitution. Happening right now, the White House has just unveiled a plan to help people paying off their student loans. The president has already approved a major disaster declaration for Florida. And today, President Biden announced more military funding for Ukraine. And as Election Day quickly approaches, we're making sure you have all the tools you need to vote with confidence. The midterm elections are just two weeks away, and early numbers suggest that turnout this year is strong. According to one estimate, so far over 14 million people have voted early, and turnout is projected to be higher than usual. This week, we're breaking down the top issues driving voters to polls, with some help from someone who's right at the heart of it. I'm Laura Barone-Lopez, White House correspondent for PBS NewsHour. Specifically, we're taking a look at how conversations around abortion, the economy, and the future of our election systems are influencing voters across the country. The first big issue we'll be talking about is abortion. Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade back in June, the fight over reproductive rights has become a defining issue for voters. Near-total bans on abortion have already been enacted in 13 states, and abortion is under threat in nearly half of the country as multiple states face legal battles. So this November, people are heading to the polls to vote for candidates based on their stance on abortion rights. And in five states, California, Michigan, Vermont, Kentucky, and Montana, they'll be able to vote directly on the protection or criminalization of abortion. Two months ago, we actually got a preview into how voters might be thinking about reproductive rights when people in Kansas voted to protect the right to an abortion in their state's constitution. But Barone Lopez told us that while the outcome was surprising and good news for Democrats, that might not translate into more Democratic momentum in November. When we talk about Kansas, I think we have to be careful when we apply it to all these other states and to races across the country, right? It was definitely surprising that is a state that leans more conservative. So the fact that voters decided to protect their abortion access there was a potentially big sign for 
Democrats who want to make this a motivating factor for voters heading into November. Now, what it says is that if abortion is actually on the ballot in a specific state, then it can have a lot of impact. If it's not on the ballot in a specific state, the question is, are candidates putting it front and center, talking about it nonstop to make sure that it's something that voters are constantly thinking about or not? And in Wisconsin, candidates for governor and attorney general are doing just that. Abortion rights are hotly contested in the state because a law from 1849 banning abortion took effect after the Roe decision. The incumbent Democrats have said they're not enforcing the ban, but their Republican opponents have campaigned on upholding it. Whoever's elected will play a large role in the future of abortion access for the state. And over in Georgia, one candidate's stance on reproductive rights is taking center stage in the race for the Senate. Herschel Walker, the GOP candidate running against incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock, has expressed he's anti-abortion with no exceptions. But earlier this month, his ex-girlfriend told the New York Times he paid for her to have an abortion in 2009 and urged her to have a second one when she got pregnant again. This week, another woman came forward to say Walker also allegedly pressured her to have an abortion in 1993. Walker has denied the allegations and continues to run on an anti-abortion platform, but he seems to have lost some support. And that's a big deal, because this race could determine which party gets control of the Senate. Nationally, Democrats are banking on the fact that this issue will bring in votes for them literally. They've spent over $100 million on advertising about abortion since Labor Day, while Republicans have only spent $4 million, according to the Washington Post. And that could be because the Republicans don't exactly have a unified message on this. We've seen Republican candidates be very firm about, you know, supporting abortion bans during the primary, only to then backtrack a bit during the general election, aware that they have to win more of the electorate in order to win, particularly statewide. Also, when Democrats try to make it a national conversation, there is not agreement among Republicans about whether or not they support some type of national ban passed through Congress. But one issue that could really work in the Republicans' favor is the economy. It's no secret that we've been through a lot when it comes to the economy. And Americans are feeling the pinch, thanks to high inflation, record high gas prices, and a crazy housing market. And voters have been clear about one thing. The economy is overwhelmingly their number one issue. Almost every election cycle, economy tends to be one of the biggest issues for voters. The big difference here, of course, is that we've experienced a massive pandemic and the economy is trying to recover from that. The economy is complicated right now. And on one hand, unemployment is down. On one hand, people have a better job market. But on the other hand, consumer good prices are up. And that's making people clearly upset and feel as though they can't really get ahead. That explains why 85% of U.S. adults said the state of the economy is either extremely or very important to their vote, according to a Gallup poll. And when it comes to which party voters trust to get things back on track, Barone Lopez said it depends on who's currently in the hot seat. Midterms are all about voting out the party in power. There are only so many things that a president can do, whether it's a Republican president or a Democratic president. 
President Biden can't control gas prices as much as President Trump wouldn't have been able to control gas prices. So I think that that's something that voters really have a hard time grappling with because, again, they just see the price of chicken going up and they see the price of gas fluctuating and going up. That's what they're concerned the most about, and rightfully so, because they're trying to figure out how to feed their families or feed themselves. It's easy to look to the president and look to Congress or the party in power as, why aren't you fixing this? Even though Democrats are trying to pass legislation to help ease costs, voters won't feel the benefits of their actions immediately and are unlikely to vote on it. Policy changes like lowering the cost of prescription drugs or executive actions like student debt relief take time to pay out for voters. And that's where the GOP's strongest election messaging comes into play and could get them a lot of votes. I think that the GOP fashions itself, true or not true, is a party of tax cuts. And under President Trump, that was tax cuts predominantly for the wealthy and corporations. But I think voters sometimes view that as they'll get a tax break. And because of that, I think sometimes they align more with Republicans on that issue. So that brings us to the last big issue people are voting on this midterm season, the future of our election systems. A recent New York Times poll found that 70% of registered voters think that our democracy is currently under threat. And given what we've learned since January 6, 2021, that might not seem surprising. But here's something else from that poll. Only 7% of those voters consider the state of democracy the most pressing issue today. So we asked Barone Lopez, why is it not a bigger deal to voters? I've sat in a number of focus groups where a lot of voters, some who are independent, some who had been lifelong Republicans who voted against former President Trump in 2020, have said that it's one of their biggest concerns, that they are absolutely worried about the impact of this. I think, though, that they also weigh that with the more immediate impacts that they feel on their daily life. Election deniers on the ballot this November have made false claims and conspiracy theories a talking point on the campaign trail. And there's an audience for it. According to The Washington Post, of the 291 election deniers running for offices nationwide, 171 of them are favored to win. And as some Americans cast their ballots in favor of election deniers— Barone Lopez says that these lies and conspiracy theories could also spark conflict like we saw on January 6th. There's the potential for violence in 2022. And extremism experts, the Sufon Center, which tracks extremism, is already warning about the potential for violence around the midterms. The other implication is that election deniers may very well not concede if they lose. So... What happens then? There are a lot of open questions about the very devastating impact that these lies and these candidates who refuse to concede could have. As for what will actually happen on Election Day, that's anyone's guess. But those are three of the biggest issues driving voters to the polls this November. And no matter what issue you care about, we want to hear from you. Give us a call at 929-266-4381 and tell us why you're voting. And if you're looking for more resources to study up ahead of Election Day, head to theskim.com backslash midterms. We've got guides on some of the nation's tightest races. 
It's no secret that the way we work has changed a lot over the last three years. For us at The Skim, it's meant adapting to a hybrid setup and finding new ways to communicate across different teams and time zones. Through it all, Slack has helped us preserve our company culture and get stuff done. We think of it as our digital HQ. And over the next few weeks, we're teaming up with Slack to give you a peek behind the curtain by taking you on a little tour of some of our most used, most loved, most important Slack channels. We're starting with the Skimmer Feedback Channel, which is where we all come to share and see real-time reactions to our content in the wild. And we tapped Sophie Reese to break it all down. She's our Senior Manager of Consumer Insights and UX Research. So let me just start a huddle here. Sophie, can you just describe what the Skimmer Feedback Channel is? So the Skimmer Feedback Channel is great because it's actually filled with unsolicited feedback from skimmers from a variety of different sources. So uh, Skim HQers post things that they've gotten texts or emails from friends and family. We also see posts of feedback that people are posting about us on Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn. So it's a really great way to kind of get a pulse on how people are feeling as they are experiencing our content. Since so many people are in this channel, it's a really unique opportunity to generate ideas and think about how we can best serve our audience in ways that isn't just coming from my team, the insights team, or the data team. And also because the feedback comes from so many sources, you know, our CEOs are posting in here. We have people who just started a week ago posting in here. It helps to create engagement and investment through the company in the type of work that my team does. And like I said before, it can help us identify gaps or bring up questions that maybe we want to dig into further. I've definitely seen posts in the channel where, you know, somebody then started a conversation and maybe I get tagged. And then there's a conversation of, can we learn more? Can we speak to this user? Can we follow up? And these posts really trigger the kinds of discussions strategic thinking and thought about research and insights that we need to push ourselves to better serve our audiences. I want to get a little technical for a second and just ask about some of the Slack features that we use in this channel. And as I'm scrolling through here, I'm seeing this post from our co-founder about someone who named their baby after reading a skim story, literally a person who named their baby after Ash Carter. And there are a lot of emoji reactions. And that's a crazy story. But what Slack features do you actually think are really helpful that we use here? The reaction emojis are really big. And I think something that's really unique and awesome in Slack is that you can also create your own. And of course, here at the Skim, we have the teal heart and we have a whole variety of really Skim specific responses that generate a sense of community and engagement when people are using them to share research or to work on projects. I use a lot of integrations, especially with various tools that we use outside of Slack. So new responses to surveys or videos and clips from user interviews that we've run, those get automatically shared into certain channels on Slack so that people can find them. Also really well done in this channel is 
when you can like reply and keep it all together in a thread, it makes using Slack much easier and it makes it much easier to find things that you're looking for. I pin things all the time in this channel and Slack box, you name it, I'm using it. (laughs) (laughs) Plus one emoji to all of that. Sophie, thank you. Next week, we're talking with some of the team leaders at The Skim, including my boss, about how they use Slack as their digital HQ to connect with other managers and learn from each other. Catch you in the next huddle. Taylor Swift dropped her 10th studio album last Friday. It's called Midnights, and it's already become Spotify's most streamed album in a single day. And that release got us thinking, how are you actually supposed to listen to an album when it comes out? For me, I used to like to go on a long drive, but that's considerably more difficult living in New York with no car. So I decided to ask an expert for some album listening advice and etiquette, whether you're just catching up on Midnight's or waiting for your favorite artist's next album. I'm Nora Princiati. I work at The Ringer, and I am a co-host on the podcast Every Single Album. The first step before listening to any new music is to emotionally prepare yourself. Swifties, you know what I'm talking about. Deep breaths, text your therapist, we're just kidding, boundaries. And then it's time to pick how you're going to listen. Headphones or car speakers. Those are the two best ways to actually process what's going on in an album, particularly something pretty heavily produced the way that Midnight's is. If you're listening on, let's say, laptop speakers, it is a lot harder to get the different layers of production. So I tend to be headphones, probably with the volume up louder than an ear doctor would recommend. Then the eternal question. Do you listen to the album in order or hit shuffle? I think with somebody like Taylor Swift, who does care about the album as a format, I do like to listen front to back to try to develop some understanding of like, what story is she trying to tell? Do I assess like Lavender Haze differently as an album opener versus just like a song? Now, playing an album shuffled is probably more akin to how most people listen to music in general. Like we live in this playlist world where people listen to individual songs, but I am a top to bottom purist. Okay, so for this, you have to go Lavender Haze to Maroon to Antihero. That is the preferred way of going about this. It is for me. When the morning came, we were cleaning incense off your... I have this thing where I get older, but just never wiser. One night, a few moons ago, summer went away, still the yearning stays... And P.S., Princiati's recommendation is to listen to each song in its entirety. Don't do what we just did here and listen to the first 10 or 30 seconds to see if you're vibing. Cause you could miss out on some gems or some killer last lines. And if you're tempted to head to Twitter or Reddit and look into lyrics and theories. I try to not look because I like to form my own opinions. 
The problem is I think the discourse is really fun. So I always have to Mm -hmm. draw a line somewhere and make a call of how much I want to like hang out with the Swifties online on an album release night versus like how much I just want to be in my own head and really, really objectively say to myself, how much do I like this song? What do I think this means? Because groupthink does, I think, take over very, very quickly. But I do a little bit of both. And Princiati told us, give yourself time and a few lessons to let your feelings about the songs develop. The first time I heard Cruel Summer off Lover, it's not that I didn't like it, but I think the first song on that album that I really, really gravitated to was Miss Americana and the Heartbreak Prince. But I finished listening to that album once through, and the first song that I clicked back to listen to was not Cruel Summer, which now I'm like, when she goes on tour, she better play. I can't even imagine my emotional state when, when that is like booming over an entire stadium. So I think especially those types of songs, it does really evolve a lot. We'll also point out this guidance works no matter who the artist is. And you didn't think we'd give you a complete set of listening instructions without actually breaking down midnights, did you? Please excuse me while I role play a music journalist for a second. Something I felt about this album is I actually think, and I like need to know if you agree or disagree with me, is this feels to me like her most millennial album yet. And I say that because I think she's addressing a ton of things, like people wanting her to be married or her career interfering with her relationships, maybe like a reference to someone being sick or kind of cultural obsession with aging. These are a lot of things I think millennials, people in our audience, myself, experience all the time. Do you feel like this is her most, like, true-to-this-generation album? I think that is so spot on. Like, so first of all, it's very reflective. Thematically, a lot of the songs are hearkening back to some moment in her life that she is rethinking as a person in this moment. Even musically, Lavender Hayes, in a lot of places, is I think he knows. Like, she samples out of the woods on question. There are a lot of musical moments that are derivative of her own work. So in a weird way, it's like this career retrospective album. A lot of us are in this sort of like pivotal time of life where people are making decisions about what their family looks like, what their job looks like, what their career looks like, what their values are. And we also just went through this two plus year period where at a time when people think of their lives moving forward, Everything was like really, really static. And I think it gave a lot of people sort of no choice but to look backwards and like rethink their entire lives in ways that can be really, really like mentally suffocating. And I hear so much of that from her on this album. For someone who used to write about like fairy tale happy endings all the time. She has this like kind of jaded perspective on it now that I think is very characteristic of a millennial woman being simultaneously excited about things like a really rich interior life and a strong relationship, but also looking at the cultural expectations of that and being like, why does it matter so much if I'm married or not? It almost feels to me like she's reimagining her own adulthood a little bit. Or even something like, you know, would have, could have, should have, 
acknowledging that some of those perspectives that we have when we're young, we grow up and grow out. Also, sometimes something happens to you when you're a teenager and you know it's totally messed up and you can be in your 30s and look back on it and go, that was totally messed up and I was spot on right about it at the time and I'm still mad about it now and I will probably never get over it. So I think like I love that she could do both of those things and in some ways really lampoon her past self, but also know when her emotional acuity was well deployed. And last question for you, what's the best lyric to you on the album and then maybe the best burn? So (laughs) there's a couple lyrics that I'm currently like really fixating on and they're not they're not like the deepest, most meaningful Taylor Swift lyrics of all time by far. But the some guy said my aura is moonstone just because he was high. Like cracks me up. <laughs> in Bejeweled. I think the best burn, man, I would not want Give Me Back My Girlhood, It Was Mine First, written about me. Yeah. I would not enjoy that experience. And John Mayer, just remember, karma is a cat. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. We had additional help this week from Hannah Parker. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Andrew Calloway, and the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next week. Until then, check out the Skim's other podcast. It's called 9 to 5-ish, and it's where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. You can find it wherever you're already listening to us.